0: When we allowed our bodies to become temples of the Holy Spirit, our spiritual struggles really began. Until then, we pretty much just lived a fleshly life. Our spiritual nature was pretty much limited to what has been called a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man. We knew something was wrong, something was missing, but unless we had godly parents or other believers who taught us about God and introduced us to Jesus, we didn't know what it was. We did have some sense of right and wrong and we generally tried to do as instructed and to make choices that were supported by the culture into which we were born. We even struggled with good and evil, whether we recognized it as such or not. So yes, every man has spiritual struggles, but it's only when that God-shaped vacuum is actually filled by the Spirit of God that spiritual warfare really begins. That's when the flesh is really challenged by the spirit. That's when the black dog is confronted by the white dog. And that's when we have to start choosing which dog to feed. And as we noted last week, when we feed the black dog, it's evidenced by deeds of the flesh, by things like immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, and carousing. And if we practice such things, If they are a regular part of our life, we will not inherit the kingdom of God because they give evidence to the fact that we are not in the kingdom of God. On the other hand, if we are in the kingdom of God, it too will become evident. If we are feeding our spiritual nature, our white dog, evidence of the Spirit's activity in our life will be seen. And Paul says it will be seen as fruit of the Spirit. Let's take a look at that produce this morning, continuing our study in the fifth chapter of Galatians. But the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now the first thing we should note is that while Paul spoke of the deeds of the flesh in the plural, he does not say fruits of the Spirit. He says, Fruit of the Spirit in the singular. He's not picturing a lot of separate fruits popping up in our life. You know, a a banana here, an orange there, a kiwi somewhere else. Nor is he picturing the fruit of the Spirit as he does the gifts of the Spirit as a variety of things, with some having one and others another. He sees the fruit of the Spirit more like a cluster of grapes than a fruit basket. He sees it as one fruit, the same fruit, growing in us all. Now, there are a lot of sweet things on the cluster, but it's only one fruit, like grapes, connected to the same vine. That means we should not think of the fruit of the Spirit as separate and distinct characteristics we should see developing in our life, or that we should assume it's to be expected and acceptable to have one and not another. We should see it as one fruit developing and growing as a unit. Now again, true. There are individual pieces of fruit in the cluster, but they are all one fruit, and they are all the same fruit of the Spirit. With that in mind, let's examine the fruit that must be found in every cluster. Paul begins with love, with agape. If the Spirit of God is within us, That spirit will be evidenced in our life by the same kind of love that characterizes God, a love that one commentator described as unmerited, transforming, and unchangeable. A love that is far less a feeling than a doing. A love Paul pictured with these words, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The Spirit of God is within us, It will be seen in the way we treat others, the way we respond to them, and to life in general. It will be seen in the joy reflected in our life. The word for joy shares a common root with grace. They're both gifts from God. It's related to happiness but goes much deeper. Happiness depends on circumstances. Joy does not. Joy is an expression of confidence in the goodness of God and His will for us. So if the Spirit of God is within us, we will be able to rejoice always as Paul admonishes us to do in Philippians 4.4. We may not be happy all the time, but we will have a deep-seated joy that will enable us to go through anything confidently and positively. The most popular greeting in the New Testament is a form of the word for joy, grace, and it's often linked to the next fruit in the cluster, peace. Peace refers to both inner tranquility and the lack of conflict, and they are interrelated. If we have a sense of well-being, we will tend to be in harmony with others. And if we are at peace with God, insofar as it depends on us, we will be at peace with all men. And like joy, a sense of peace does not depend on circumstances. It too is based on our confidence in God and His goodwill for us. The importance of peace in the life of the believer is evidenced by the fact that it's mentioned 80 times in the New Testament. In fact, it's found in every book of the New Testament. If the spirit within is overcoming the lusts and anxieties of the flesh, we will have a peace that passes understanding, a peace that won't make sense to the world. And that peace within will be seen in our patience with others. The word used for patience isn't the word for endurance under trials or pressure, it's the word for long suffering, forbearance, tolerance. It's the ability to put up with people. It comes from the words for long and temper, from macros and thumos, the outburst of anger we looked at last week. It's the ability to keep our temper under check when dealing with others. Chrysostom said it's the grace of a man who could revenge himself but doesn't. It's most often used of God's attitude toward us. And if He is in us, it will be seen in our attitude toward others. Our general, Disposition toward other people in general will then be one of kindness. You know, Jesus used this word with reference to his yoke. When he said his yoke is easy, the word he used can also be translated kind. Being yoked to him is kind, it makes life easier. So, kindness is that quality that makes life easier for those who are yoked to us. If Christ is making life easier for us by going through life with us, we will make it easier for others and will do so not only by being kind to them, but by also doing that which is good for them. Goodness will therefore also be seen in our life. Now, goodness describes that which is beneficial. In its effect, it's hard to define in Greek or English because it's ultimately judged by what it accomplishes. It may actually include unpleasant things like rebuke and correction. But even then, it's expressed in a way that reflects God's willingness to do whatever is necessary to bring about that which is good in our life. It's the nourishing part of a fruit that makes us strong, and healthy, and that strength is seen in our faithfulness. Faithfulness is the same word as faith, but when used in this context, it has more to do with a person's faithfulness than with his faith per se. It's that which springs from someone's faith in God, that which makes him faithful to God and to others, as we can count on him. So can others count on us. Gentleness is a word that is also translated as meekness. It describes an animal with all its spirit under control. Aristotle described a gentle person, a meek person, as someone who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time, a gentle person is therefore someone who exhibits self-control. Self-control is the mastery of self and its appetites and passions. It's the refusal to give rein to impulses and desires. Interestingly, however, self-control does not come from self. It comes from the spirit within. It is up to us to feed the white dog enough to dominate the black dog so it can be expressed. But like all the fruit in the cluster, self-control is what the spirit is producing within us. And since the fruit comes from the spirit, Paul says there is no law against it. Now, it's been noted this is probably an understatement used for a rhetorical effect. Paul has said the law was given to restrain evil, but the fruit, these qualities, do not need to be restrained, hence no law opposes them. These are not matters of law. These are not commands we have to obey. These are the produce of the Spirit. Now. Obviously, some do demonstrate some of the characteristics mentioned because all are made in the image of God. But the actual fruit of the Spirit will not be seen if we don't have the Spirit of God within us. It doesn't come from us, however, if we want the Spirit to bring forth such fruit from our spiritual garden, we do have a very important role to play. We must prepare the soil from which it can grow, verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires first thing we must do if we want the fruit of the Spirit to be seen in our life is to make certain we belong to Christ. He is the source of the fruit. He said it of Himself in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing." We cannot have the fruit of the Spirit apart from Christ. He must abide. We must abide in Him and He must abide in us. So how does, how does that take place? How does it happen? How do we abide in Him and He in us? We abide in Him when we trust Him, when we count on Him to do for us. What we could never do for ourselves when we allow him to be our Savior and our Lord. But how does he abide in us? How does he get inside us? Obviously, we have to invite him in. We have to welcome him into our life. He won't force his way into anyone. And we do have to make room for him. In fact, we have to get entirely out of the way before he can come in. Paul put it this way back in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. A holy God cannot inhabit an unholy place. That's why a crucifixion of self must precede His coming to abide in us. Sin must be dealt with. We must crucify self before the sinless Son of God can come in. Paul made that clear in Romans 6.6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin." He says a similar thing here in Galatians 5.24, "...now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires." Now there's a subtle but significant difference between what was said in Paul's other references to our crucifixion and this one. The others were in the passive voice. They described something that was done to us. We were crucified. We submitted to it, but it was done to us. Here, it's in the active voice. We do the crucifying. We actively crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Now it is in the past tense, it is something we did in the past, but that doesn't mean it's over. A crucifixion takes time. It's a slow death. And if we decide to leave the cross, the crucifixion stops. The bystanders had it right. Jesus could have saved himself by coming down off the cross and we can keep the flesh with its passions and desires alive by taking them off the cross and some seem to do this on a fairly regular basis but if we do The deeds of the flesh will crowd out the fruit of the Spirit like weeds taking over a garden. If we want the fruit of the Spirit to grow and to be readily evident in our life, we must keep our passions and desires nailed to the cross. And if we will properly prepare and faithfully tend to the garden of our soul, It will go into production. Verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. You know, fruit cannot be manufactured. It has to grow. You can't make a cluster of grapes. It can only come from the source of all living things. If we've yoked ourselves to the source of life and stay in union with Him, we will live forever. We will live by the power of the Spirit. And if we walk by the Spirit, that source of life will produce fruit in our life. But we do have to walk by the Spirit in order for that to happen. And the word for walk that Paul uses here is not the ordinary word for walk. It's a word that means to walk in line. Paul is saying we have to get in line with the Spirit. We must get in step and stay in step with the Spirit if we expect to see the production of fruit in our life. And the production of fruit in our life, is not optional. Christ made that clear in a frightening parable. And he began telling this parable. A certain man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the Vineyard keeper, behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even take up the ground? And He answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. It's a scary parable, and it's talking about us and the fruit that God must see in our life, the activity of the Spirit that must be evident. It's not optional to bear the fruit of the Spirit. So if we're not already doing it, we better get serious about the production of fruit in our life. The fruit of the Spirit comes from the Spirit, but we do have a hand to play in its production. Let's make certain we are doing our part. Let's make sure our all is on the altar. And we are yielding him our body and our soul. I pray that is our goal, and that is your prayer as well, is your all on the altar. Let's stand and commit to that.